with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 640 of the Survival Podcast, Friday, April 8th, 2011. Hopefully it wasn't too bad of an experience to not have a show Wednesday and Thursday. Maybe you listened to a back episode. Maybe if you're a new listener, you got caught up on some of the other episodes or something like that. But we are back, and uh, we're going to keep rocking on. And since it's a Friday, it's a Friday show with your questions, your comments, your concerns, all by phone. The show's not live, so that means you dial 866-65-THINK. Again, you match the numbers, 866-65-THINK. And you leave your message in two minutes or less, and I try to get you on a show within a week or two. Uh, tips for getting on the show, don't call from the back of motorcycles, don't call from inside racing cars doing 187 miles an hour, or whatever it is some of you folks do. If you call from a quiet environment, you make your question to the point and direct, you do it in two minutes or less and get it out, and I can actually understand you so that the audience can understand you, and we'll get you on the show. So make your call like one of the 12 calls you'll hear today, and odds are you will get on the air. Uh, before we go ahead and take your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making, show the sh so sure, making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle is the original survival podcast sponsor, the first company that ever contacted me and said, hey, We want to be a sponsor on your show. We want to pay for that privilege. And they've been doing that for over two years now and continuing to provide a free uh, discount member buyers club to the member support brigade as well. That alone is valued at $29. And that's free to every single member of the member support brigade. They also offer just about everything a prepper could need to live the prepper lifestyle. Everything from long-term storage food, 12-volt products for your solar and wind projects, and just about anything else you could possibly come up with that you would need. And while you're on their site, maybe jump over to their sister site and check out their hardened shelters. They build some of the best hardened shelters in the world. Next up today, Frank Sharp Jr.'s Operation Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. I'll tell you what, it's really important that not only do you have guns and not only do you have ammunition, but if you ever have to use them, you know what to do and you know how to do it. And you're mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually prepared to do so. All right, And I think a lot of people in our minds, we think, well, if somebody breaks in the house, I know what to do and I'll do it. But reality often smacks us a little bit differently than fantasy does. There's no better way to prepare for that than to have lots of quality training. You'll find some of the best firearms training in the world at Fortress Self-Defense Consultants uh, under the tutelage, again, of Frank Sharp. And I'll tell you what, a lot of people ask me, Jack, uh, you know, I'm considering this gun or that gun next. What, you, what do you think I should buy? And often I say, I think, if unless you've had some firearms training, maybe you should instead invest in a firearms training course. So check out Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. And remember, if you have a group of people, but you can't travel to them, get in touch with them anyway. Odds are they'll be able to travel to you and provide you that same high-quality training at your facility versus their own. Uh, next up today, uh, I want to remind you guys about the gear shop, and I want to let you know we have something very, very cool we just got into the gear shop. Geocache coins. So these are little geotags, and all you guys that are geocachers will know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not a geocacher, you probably won't, but they're a little coin about the size of a quarter. They have a Survival Podcast logo and stuff on them, and they're just cool. They're three bucks a piece, and that includes shipping. 
So you can buy 10 for 30 bucks. You can buy one for three dollars. Since they are three bucks, including shipping, how about buying at least two or three? Because you know that's kind of what geocache tags are for anyway. Uh, but a lot of you guys like to get out there and do the geocaching thing. That's where you get a GPS. You go out, you find little caches, and and you leave stuff behind and things like that. You register them online. It's a very very cool sport. Uh, get you out, get you about, get you out into a lot of the woods uh, areas and stuff. Really get you good at using a GPS as well. And now you can help spread the survival podcast message while participating in the hobby of your choice. And some of you guys even that don't do cash, they would probably want a couple of them just because they're cool. So check out the gear shop for, la for that. Last but not least, consider joining the members support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get great discounts like the one that I just talked about, the free lifetime membership to Safe Castle. You also get a free preferred membership from Western Botanicals. That's 50 bucks a year. You get that for free as an MSB member. There's 79 bucks. There's 23 other vendors. I got three more coming this month to provide discounts that are, uh, one is a custom leather manufacturer and another one does custom Kydex holsters. So they're coming as well. I just added two more. I added the Ready Store and I added Safe and Ready Life. Both of those give discounts, one 5%, one 10%. And there's tons of great discounts. Translation, if you are making purchases in the Prepper lifestyle, the $50 you would spend to support the show at 20 cents an episode in the MSB will be the best money you've ever spent. You absolutely get a huge Huge return of investment. That's how I set the dadgone thing up. In the beginning, I want to just say a little bit more about this uh, today. When I first started doing this show, about three months into it, people started saying, put a PayPal donation button on the site. Take donations for the site. I'll send you some money. And, uh, one or two people actually found out my PayPal address because we were trying to set up some events and, and because I had sent some money like to, uh, you know, reserve a campsite or something like that. They knew my PayPal email address. So a couple people actually sent me money without me asking. I sent it back. I do not run the site on donations. I run the site like what it is, a business. And that means if you spend a dollar with me, you better get more than a dollar in value back. That's the ethic I run this site on. That's the ethic I run the member support brigade on. That's the ethic I, I look at when I take sponsors. Those sponsors better do the same thing or they don't get on my site. So do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. The show is listener and sponsor supported, but it's really all about the listeners. I'll fire a sponsor in a heartbeat that doesn't take care of my listeners. Uh, some of you have actually seen that firsthand because it has happened once. Uh, with that, though, let's go ahead and take care of uh, you guys today because I got a lot of great calls, so let's go ahead and take that first call right now. Hello, Jack. This is James from London, Ohio. Uh, just had a quick question on what you, your thoughts are, real quick, on uh, the uh, gun ban that's about to be imposed by the Obama administration. Look forward to hearing your uh, your thoughts on the matter. I know what it is on mine, you know, being a former veteran in the Army and the Marine Corps, uh, and also an old federal cop. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Well, the first question I have is, what gun ban? I mean, did you get one of the 500 freaking emails from Gun Action Alert saying that Obama's going to do a backdoor ban by signing a treaty with the UN that's going to ban all guns in America and become law without going through Congress and the Senate? Because if you did, if you did, delete it and don't give those people any more money because they're full of shit because that's not how a treaty works. It's just not. You want to ratify a treaty and you want to make it binding for the United States... 
You need two-thirds of the Senate to ratify the damn thing or it's not worth the paper it's written on. And some Native Americans would tell you even when it is ratified by two-thirds of the Senate, it's not worth the paper that it's written on. So if that's what you're talking about, stop it. Stop it. Stop hype. Stop bullshit. The only thing I can find that's currently credible that anyway would be some sort of a new gun ban is a study being done by the ATF to determine whether or not they should ban the importation of certain tactical shotguns, which, of course, I am 100% vehemently opposed to. Absolutely vehemently opposed to. But even if they do this, number one, we can still fight it. Number two, they're not coming to take your guns. That's not how this would work. What this would do, just like right now, there's certain restrictions on, on certain types of, of, of rifles, carbines that are brought into the United States based on how many features they can have. It's not the assault weapons ban that expired uh, after Clinton left office. This is an importation thing. Right now, there's restrictions already. If you uh, if you want to modify a Saiga shotgun to do more than it already does, you have to put a certain amount of American-made parts into it, and then you can modify its ass off if you want to. So this is a bad thing. I'll put a link to the study today. Now, there's uh, the only thing I can find about it in, in the main you know web searches are people trying to sell a book that if if you buy the book they'll donate money to. Uh, to try to stop this thing. And I'm not saying it's good or it's bad, but that's mostly what I found on the web. I had to dig deep into the news to get to the actual thing that's going on. It's not a proposed ban. It's a study to consider a possible ban. Not that it's good. Not that I'm for it. Not that I'm saying not to worry about it. Not that I'm saying false alarm. But let's be clear what we're talking about here. It's the ATF attempting to determine whether or not they should take action, and not really knowing if they do take action, if Congress might have something to say about it, you know, with a huge Republican majority in the House, for instance, that might say, hey, no, you can't do this, or that it might not be challenged in court. It's a study. There's millions of studies every day. There's millions of studies to do shit we don't want them to do. So I'd watch this one. I'd voice my opinion on this. I'd notify my congressman and my senator of this. I plan to do it today. I just found out about it because I had to find something that this caller might have been talking about. I don't think this is what he was talking about, though, because the word gun ban, the gun ban, um, I think is probably one of these emails. If you get another email today, folks, or in the next couple days or the next couple weeks that says you want you, Obama to do backdoor gun ban, then that's the one that's going around. It is absolutely 100% total, complete bullshit. Not because the ass clown wouldn't do it, but because the ass clown can't do it. The United States cannot enter into a treaty with anybody and have it have any binding effect on the nation as a whole without the approval of Congress. And the day they do... The day they do, it's time for us to go to Washington and physically remove some people. Because it is a complete, total, abject violation of the Constitution. Not the arguments that we have right now about whether the Constitution has been trampled on. And people like you and I believe it has and other people believe it hasn't. It's not that way at that point. That You might as well take the damn thing out of its protective case and set it on fire. The day this nation is bound by a treaty without the approval of Congress, it's time to remove people from office. So until that happens, don't believe bullshit like that. Sometimes people are just doing fundraising to get money. All right, and I'm not saying the people are bad in general, but I'm telling you this is hype and it's overloaded bullshit. The ATF shotgun ban on the importation of certain styles of shotgun 
is bullshit. And the fact that the report is written about, well, it doesn't meet certain sporting criteria. Okay, the Second Amendment's not about shooting ducks. It's about self-defense. It absolutely is about self-defense. But just remember something, folks. The tactical shotgun is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, if they ban the importation, it doesn't ban your accessorization. And uh, you know what's funny to me, and I don't think this is a good idea, by the way, but I just want to point out something I think is funny. A lot of people that are like, you should only buy American. You should only buy American. And then they get upset over you know certain guns not being allowed to be imported in certain formats or functionality. I don't think they should be. I'm for open, free trade. I really am as a libertarian, but uh, I do think it's funny. I only drive a Ford. It's built probably in Korea or something. Uh, you know, and I don't know this, and I can't believe you sold a bag to me that was made in China. And, uh, I'd like to do business with American companies. Boy, they better not ban the importation of this Italian tactical shotgun. We, you know, I'm just, I'm just pointing it out. Again, this is, a, this is a serious one, though. Uh, it, it, and to me, if you care about your rights as a gun owner, it is that slippery slope. We start going down. Well, if we're banning this for being imported, why are we allowing it here? If it does fall under the the Gun Control Act of 1968, can't we use it to uh, to enforce that? You know, on and on and on and on. So um, I do think this one's real. I just don't think it's what the caller had in mind, and I wanted to point out because I've been getting those emails for a year now. Dead gone president can't sign a treaty and make it have effect in the United States of America without the approval of Congress. He can executive order his ass off all he wants to on it. It won't stand. It cannot stand. All right? Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Brian from Georgia. I'm getting all my seeds uh, going right now um, for spring, getting them planted and uh, starting some of them. But uh, it got me thinking, what if... Uh our economy wasn't, you know, backed obviously by uh, the Federal Reserve System. We could do away with that, and they're talking about replacing it with gold and silver. But what if it was backed by uh, by seeds? Uh, what's your opinions on that? What's some things that I, you know, may not be thinking about? Because it seems like that would be something that, uh, you know, it, it's got the most value. You can grow food with it. Um, you can't eat, you know, gold. You can't necessarily do anything with it other than use it as, you know, basically a dollar bill. Without that trust there, gold is just as useless as a dollar bill, but you can always utilize a seed. So give me your thoughts on that. Thanks. Have a great one. Well, this is an interesting question. It has a, a variety of rat holes we can descend into to learn some things, but we can only do so much on a call-in show, and maybe it's time for another currency show to come examine some of the things this would bring up. Number one, it's a straight-up currency. We're going to trade in seed. Um, there's some problems. No seed is so particularly valuable that it would work for purchasing things uh, like like cars and trucks and houses and boats. Um, in fact, it might be hard to buy something much larger than a couple cases of beer with any reasonable quantity of seed that could be carried around unless we're using something like saffron, which we end up with a shortage issue, and I'd much rather use saffron to cook rice than trade for beer with it. Um, so we've got, it, we've got a size quantity issue. So we can solve that by getting great big seed storehouses and trading paper backed by seeds. 
which would be just like right now you can do with the commodities market and you can buy, you know, corn futures and things like that. It's not exactly that, but you can buy corn. You can control large quantities of grain and trade paper on that right now. And this is one of the problems that I have with people like, well, if we could just use gold and silver in the economy and trade on that in the free private market away from government, um, um, we, 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 everything would be fine. Really? You can do that right now. That's, that's the rat hole this opens for us. Every time somebody says that to me, I'm like, so take gold and silver for your services and your business. Trade gold and silver. Oh, you can't do it. I do it. You want to join the MSB? You want to pay in silver? I even give you a big discount. One ounce of silver, one year. Done. Trade with me anytime you want. You want to buy a member support brigade? Buy, buy it for me in silver. You want to buy five years? Send me five ounces. Done. I'll set your account up. Send you your password. So what do you mean you can't do it? Well, if we could trade in commodities, we can trade in commodities. See, what people don't realize is that it's not that we're not allowed to do it. It's that the government requires payment of taxes in cash. That's really what it comes down to. So Utah just passed this new law that says that they you can officially use uh, federally pr uh, minted gold and silver coins in the state of Utah as currency. Which no one cares about unless you're just, you know, wanting to believe in the, the, the tooth fairy or something. Because, let me explain this to you. You only can use them at face value. So, Utah has said you can trade an American silver eagle in Utah as currency at a value of $1. It's worth about $35. And that they'll accept it as payment for your taxes, for Utah state tax purposes, in the amount of $1. You know, like a $20 gold coin they'll accept that's worth, you know, 1500 bucks. They'll take it as a $20 coin. See, Gresham's law is already ahead of the curve there. So, what we really have to understand then is if we're actually going to fix the currency problem that it's not just about moving to gold and silver or seeds or any other commodity. Now, I actually like your idea as a piece. See, here's how I think currency should work in the United States. One, I think the currency should be debt free. That's number one. No debt on the currency. Now, debt to loan the currency, if I loan you money, great. But the, the currency should not be created as debt. It should be created as pure currency. The government creates it. It goes into the economy through, through, through spending programs, through, through, um, through allowances to banks, what have you. Right? And it's debt-free. The currency itself does not carry debt. And then what you and I do with the currency is our, our business. See, the, the problem with... The current currency system is so much bigger than most people understand. Think about we're all playing basketball at the same time, but there's thousands of goals and everybody has their own balls. And we can all shoot for baskets. And every time we make a point, we, we get a point. And every time we miss, we miss. That's basic how we, how, we, how we make money. We do good, we get money. We don't do good, we don't get money. We can compete with each other. I can block your shot. But every time I spend blocking your shot, I'm not making my own. Now, People come into the system and start charging us interest on our points. So I make a point, now I owe a point and a half. And that's how the current system works. Worse, there are people in the game who can manufacture points without taking shots. They can just start running their score up anytime they want, which devalues our points. If you really dig into that, you'll start to understand how big a problem it is. That it, I don't care if it's a private entity... And I don't care if it's the government, anybody that creates the currency with debt attached to it at its creation has created a game that's lopsided. Right? So we make the currency public and debt free and anybody can make as many points as they want. Now I can take my points I've earned and I can loan them to you at interest, 
But the currency itself doesn't carry interest. What a great way to run a country. So how do we do that? Well, if we try to back it with gold and silver, the problem is there's only so much gold and silver, and we have to bring a currency up that meets the current economy of the United States. So we take the seeds, we take the timberland, we take the coal, we take everything that America has, basically a resources-based currency, and we say the total value of the American economy is X, Y, Z, comma, X, Y, Z, comma, X, Y, Z, comma, X, Y, Z, comma. All right? This is what the nation's worth. That's how many units of $1 will make. And we are not going to increase or decrease the currency unless the resources of the nation increase or decrease. You have a stable level currency that everybody can use and play the game equally with. That's why it won't ever happen anytime soon because it actually would fix the problem. Seeds, sure. How much? But you know, again, what I want people to understand when they make this case where if we just were allowed to, you can trade anything you want right now. The problem is it's going to be denominated in dollars. You can trade gold and silver all you want, but the person receiving the gold and silver is going to denominate it in dollars. You want to buy a house? I'm about to sell a house. Anyone wants to buy my house? Come see me. It's going to sell for about $135,000, $140,000. You want to give me gold for it? Fine. Don't think I'm not going to do a little math problem. Ounces of gold times current spot price equals, right? So we have to fix the currency itself. There has to be something that things are valued against. Just a thought. Seeds, the big problem, even if we had valuable seeds, they have a, 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 a finite shelf life. If I take a piece of silver, stick it in a drawer, and forget about it and die, and my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson finds it someday when they unbury my house, it's still pretty much the same as it ever was. Seeds have long life cycles, but nothing like that. So that makes it very difficult to base a, a currency fully on something like a seed. For a barter thing, they make a lot of sense. And inside a small economy, really, folks, you should go to trtam.com. trtam.com. Uh, that's the real truth about money. Again, trtam.com and download my book. It goes through creating currencies. So if you want to make a gold-backed currency and a silver-backed currency, go through all my questions and show me how it would work. And that's a good exercise for anybody. Anyway, let's go take another call. I went long on this one. Jack, this is Ryan from Washington again. Once again, I want to thank you for the show. Um, I was listening to a bunch of the stuff you did with Paul Wheaton, and the Wafati thing, it just seems cool as all get out to me. Um, and the, one of the things, I went back and I, re, I listened to the episode, and I went to the website. I wanted to know if you can use, or if it's practical to use, a concrete foundation with Wafati. Um, I've got a friend that does foundations and all this other stuff for a living, and I wanted to look at maybe radium flooring in combination with everything else. I understand it's supposed to be, uh, you've got the thermal mass that's providing this, but I, you know, I just, I like secondary stuff. Anyway, if you could ask him, uh, the next time that comes up, or if you know the answer to that, I would appreciate it. Thanks again, Jack, and, uh, so fun. So that's actually an older question. I had to go to the source on that one. Here's what Paul says. Paul says you can. Ehler's book goes into a lot of detail about why not to. Plus, as with Ehler's $50 house, it eventually became a $500 house. You may want to leave your remodeling options open. Concrete would kind of impede that. I also talked to Mike a few days ago about his latest creation. He's going to try a cob floor Uh, but radiant heat would probably not be necessary. So that's directly from Paul. Paul is the Wolfati expert because he created it. 
I don't really know that much about Wafity, so uh, I'm going to leave Paul's answer stand for itself there. Let's go ahead and take another call. I will say that when he says Ayler's book, that's Mike Ayler's book, the $50 and, under, $50 and up underground house book. Uh, and you can find a lot more information about building this type of structure there. And then basically, Mike, uh, I mean, uh, Paul's Wafity is a enhanced version of Mike Ayler's design. So Mike Ayler's book, along with Paul's article, kind of takes you from Mike's design to Paul's design. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, this is Dave from Upper Michigan calling. Um, I have about six acres of pasture. Um, fenced off for horses, uh, possibility exists of doing other critters um, in the future. But the pasture is probably 30% taken over with Russian thistle. And when I talk to farmers in the area, they say that Russian thistle, the only way of killing that, is, as it is an invasive plant, the only way of killing it is chemically. And I'm wondering if you have any input on that of Uh, what I could do. It's just physically too much to get out there um, and pull by hand and it's invasive so it's going to spread every year and just take over and take over more and more. Thanks a lot, Jack. Talk to you. Bye. Having never dealt with Rus Russian thistle before, I looked it up and did some research into it. And it's a real problem. It's a real bitch. And if you don't do something about it, it's going to take over your entire pasture. Organic controls are all but impossible. And this is where I have crossover into the world of reality. Um, I think it's terrible when we take something like a gene and splice it into a corn and make a corn able to withstand being sprayed with atrazine and then we spray the corn with atrazine and we eat a genetically modified corn and we eat atrazine and that's all wonderful for destroying our bodies. I don't think that all herbicides are evil inherent to themselves. What I would recommend here is to use as little as possible uh, of, a, of a herbicide and spot treat only. I would cut the stuff back, uh, get yourself a good scythe and just cut it. Just cut it straight off um, at the ground. You may have to remove it. I mean, because if you don't want to do this when it's not at a point where it's going to seed, obviously, because now you're just spreading seed everywhere. Spray the crown with a direct application of your uh, your herbicide. Plant very aggressive cover crops, not right where you sprayed it, because obviously you've kind of ruined that little piece of ground for a while. In the general vicinity, uh, things that are non-legume based at the very closest and then legumes out from there. So uh, anything that you can use to choke it out. So buckwheat, um, any kind of uh, triticale, uh, which is like a hybrid wheat, anything that would make a good cover crop. Keep, and keep pounding it with cover crop. Choke it out. Put the things you want in there for pasture and choke it out. And you're going to have, from what everything I've read, you're going to have to use herbicide here. Um, and, and people may be going, gasp, Jack believes in herbicide. Well, I believe in herbicide use properly, not blanketing areas with herbicide, but using it as one method of control. I can't find anything that actually eats Russian thistle. Um, I, they've done some research with different types of insects that are specific to it. That doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, so I would go with cut, spray. And that's a lot of, lot of acreage to work on. But the more and more you do of it, Uh, the less and less the problem will be. I don't know that you'll ever fully eradicate it, but the, the more you get growing what you want to grow, 
the less problems you're going to have with what you don't want to grow. So some other things you might want to think about are putting in some swales or some terraces or some, some way to make irrigation more effective so that some of the plants that aren't as hardy as thistle uh, can get by. So Russian thistle, when I first heard thistle, I had all kinds of great ideas until I looked up what a Russian thistle was. This is stuff they also call tumbleweed. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's apparently bad stuff. Uh, so I empathize with you, but there's a time when we accept the fact that not all things can be completely natural. And I think you're dealing with one of them here. Now, odds are if you went out every day with a scythe and just cut this stuff to the ground and just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it because you, you didn't have to have a job or a life or anything, sooner or later you could win this war. Um, you could turn it into mulch and, and throw it right back on the ground and eventually win. But I think that most people don't have that time. So I am okay with the spot application of herbicide in very specific situations where nothing else will work. Just like I don't think we should spread rat poison all over the place to kill every rat in existence. If you get a rat you can't trap for long enough, you, know, you set up a little poison for them. But it's a spot application only. It's what I would recommend. If someone knows an organic means that's effective to control Russian thistle, please let me know. I would love to know, and I'd be happy to make that recommendation over the spot application and cutting of the thistle. I would be very, very happy to do that. I just, um, I just don't know of one. And at some point, you know, from what I've read about this stuff, if he does not take control uh, this way, You're going to end up with a field of nothing but Russian thistle, with not with which nothing eats. Um, so unless you're going to take it back to forest, well, you're kind of done at that point. So, uh, so that's what I'd recommend. Again, anybody with a better recommendation, please let me know. Don't be shocked that I actually accept reality. Those of you that think I'm a purist environmentalist, I am an environmentalist to the point of reality. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Sasquatch on the forum. I have some cherry trees that got some blight on them. I don't know what it was, but it was a brown fungus-looking thing that came up on all the cherries when the cherries started turning red. Is there any treatment I can give to the tree before the season starts up here in the Northeast to uh, take care of that problem? Please let me know. Thanks. Bye. Sounds like cherry spot could be cherry brown rot. If it's brown rot, you'll also notice rotting of the fruit. If it's brown spot, you'll just notice it, uh, like you said, on the leaves. So since you didn't mention uh, the fruit being affected this year, I, I'm going to assume that you, you've got brown spot. But they're both pretty much treated by the same thing. There's a... Uh, There's a product called uh, Bordeaux uh, by Vitex, or Vitex, V-I-T-A-X, uh, and and basically that will work. And anything that's basically a fungicide based on like a copper sulfate uh, and lime mix is, is generally going to work fairly well for you with that. Um, it is a uh, it's a very safe control if you especially if you use it early in the year if you spray it at any time after the fruit begins to set uh, you do need to make sure you wash your fruit uh, but it's it's uh, I don't know that it's an or truly organic control but it's also not a um, it's not a harsh chemical that you need to be really concerned about introducing into your ecosystem. And if you can use it, let's say, to knock this thing out, 
uh, it's very probable that you wouldn't have to use it season after season. In fact, you shouldn't, uh, unless you notice a reemergence of these, uh, of the brown spot. Uh, but it's very common with, uh, any stone-based fruit, so like cherries, uh, plums, anything in the prunus, uh, family, uh, it, it does happen. Uh, brown spot being a little le- less worrisome than, than the, the, the brown rot, which causes again the fruits to rot, but, um, that's what I would look at as a, a fungicide based on a copper sulfite lime, uh, and using it as minimal as possible, uh, and specifically using it and maybe at times of the year where your trees are most susceptible, where it gets a little bit, uh, more moisture or something like that. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. But that's, uh, that's a good one that probably a lot of people sooner or later are going to have to deal with. Hi, Jack. It's Sasquatch again. Uh, I, sorry, I, forgot to, to add this question. I've never heard you Im- mention um, putting manure into the raised beds or gardens. Um, I'd start up, well, I'm first, I'm just starting up some raised beds now, and I was thinking about adding manure. Uh, would you uh, address the manure question at all and whether or not it should be added and what should not be added in the case that you do add manure, and uh, generally how much manure uh, percentage-wise? All right, thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, maybe there's, you know, and I, first of all, Sasquatch gets two questions because both of them added up to less than two minutes and they were quick and direct and just two different calls one after the other. So I'm not making a special, uh, special consideration here or anything because he really meant to put them together. I just didn't blend them. Um, I'll tell you what though, I guess I'm not being clear enough on this because I talk about compost all the time and to me, manure is a huge part of compost. So when I'm making compost, there's always manure going into my compost. And generally, in the form of cow or horse manure are the two manures that I can get my hands on, so to speak, and, uh, and, and compost with regularly. And I think if you guys are having problems getting your compost piles to cook the way you want them to, adding some manure is a great way to get that to go a little bit faster. Um, I also am a big fan of chicken manure, but that's a very hot manure that definitely has to be composted first. I just don't have ready access to it. I guess when I get some chickens up in Arkansas, they'll make plenty of it for me. About the only manure that I don't make as part of a compost mix that I would put directly on my beds, and I'd be happy to get my... Uh, uh, get as much of it as I can to use for this would be rabbit manure. Rabbit, rabbit manure is a very cool manure is the way they would term it. It does not need to be composted. It makes great compost, though. Uh, and I would use it both in compost and directly. But rabbit manure directly into the garden is fine. Uh, anything else really should go through the composting process first. So when you hear me saying add compost, add compost, add compost, what I'm saying is add compost that's made with organic material, including manure. So that that's what I'm talking about. So compost when the bed starts, compost throughout the year, mulch with compost, add compost. If things don't look quite right, put more compost on it. If you're not sure what to do, put compost on it. If it's too dry, put compost on it. If it's too wet and not draining well enough, put compost on it. If there's too many weeds, put compost on it and cover the weeds up with the compost. If the plant is a little bit sickly looking, add compost. You get it, right? The ground's a little bit too hard, add compost. Uh, compost and mulch, and compost having the manure in it. Um, about the only other direct amendment that I routinely add to my garden bed without composting it is coffee grounds. 
Uh, you can add coffee grounds to your garden whenever you want to. Uh, I get big giant bags of them for free from Starbucks and other coffee houses. Most of it, you know, I'd say about half of it, I would say, goes into the composting bin. And what I do is I keep little buckets of things out there so that when I go out and I, let's say I'm going to add, like, I, I cut up a bunch of limes for margaritas this weekend, and I chopped up some peppers, and I've got the cores, and I've got some apple cores, and I've got some of the waste from uh, shard, and I've got some of the waste from... Um, from celery, and I, you know, that's exactly what I did this weekend through the compost bin. Well, when I go out there to do that, that's all greens. So, you know, I open the bucket and I pull out some coffee grinds and I throw a few scoops of coffee grinds in there with them. And I open this other bucket that's got some chopped up brown leaves and I throw that in there and I throw a little bit of green grass in and I give it all a little bit of a mix and I put the lid back on my compost bin. Well, that's going to give me much better results, you know, maybe throw in a, a, a scoop full of, of horse or cow manure or something. That's usually already in there, uh, kind of in the base, and it's creating a lot of things that help uh, get the chemical reactions going. If I had rabbit manure, it doesn't smell bad. It's a very easy thing to keep on hand, keep a bucket full of it or whatever, and, and I would you know throw some of that in there. And I think that that type of a compost mixture is going to go a lot longer for you. So definitely on the manure, to me, it's just it, it's part of compost. I also at times will buy commercially available composted cow manure, and I'll add that directly to the bed. But again, I consider that compost. Uh, it just happens to be compost composed of manure. So maybe that makes all my advice a little more clear for everybody, not just you, Sasquatch. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jetta in Wyoming. I got a question on planting blueberries in pots. Um, I bought a blueberry. It is uh, um, Blu-ray style, and I want to plant it in a container. I'm going to buy a great big 24-inch uh, pot to put it in. And I was wondering, how do I make the soil more acidy to where I would like it? And also, too, um, winter maintenance. I've had zero success container gardening or planting stuff in containers. And I'd like to plant this in the container so I can move it around and stuff, such. Um, what do I need to do where, in the wintertime here in Wyoming? Do I need to bring the container in indoors, like in my garage? And just... How often do I need to fertilize it? What type of fertilizer? Thanks. I'm going to hang up and listen to your question or your comment now. And appreciate the podcast. Bye. Good question. First, on the acidic soil, one of the biggest things you can do is get yourself a good supply of pine needles and use pine needles as mulch after about uh, every four or five months. Yank them out, throw them in the compost pile, or you know, toss them to the side and replace them. Uh, just pine trees virtually everywhere in the world should be very easy to do, especially just enough to cover the top of a container. We always worry about the acidifying effects of pine needle, and it turns out that you know you can actually use it to acidify things that you want to be acid. The other thing you can do is get any good quality organic-based fertilizer designed for things like azaleas. Azaleas like acidic environments. That'll do very well for your cranberries, your blueberries, and other acid-loving fruits. So that's easy enough. You're in Wyoming, right? And I know that from previous calls as well with you. So this is probably why your plants are dying in containers. When you bury something in the ground and it's got a root system that's buried under the ground and you give it some mulch, even though it gets brutally cold in Wyoming, the earth itself, once you go down a couple inches, unless we're up in the tundra with permafrost, the earth itself only gets so cold. Okay, when we take a pot and we have it completely exposed 360 degrees, 
uh, and then it's in contact with the earth and, and, and completely exposed to the elements from bottom to top, uh, it can get a lot colder in there. What's probably happening is in those brutally cold Wyoming winters, uh, your perennials you're trying to winter over in a container, the root system is being killed. So you're going to have to provide that some extra protection. Press probably as simple as bringing it into a barn or into a greenhouse or something like that throughout the winter. But if you're, if you're having losses, it's probably because you're effectively knocking back um, your uh, your zone by two or three uh, uh, pegs. So if you're in zone four, you're probably effectively creating like a zone two environment. So if you have something that's not hardy to zone two, but zone four, you're losing it. And that's what it is. It's 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 just like you'd say, well, you know, it, it can it can handle temperatures down to 10 degrees. Well, that doesn't mean if I put it in a freezer with a temperature of 10 degrees and I hold it there nonstop for let's say uh, uh, 25 days that I won't either kill it or have a detrimental effect on its growth. That means it can handle temperatures down too, but not just sitting there and spending lots of time there. So uh, again, on the acidity, pine needle mulch, uh, azalea fertilizer, and uh, you'll do just fine with that. And another thing you can do is uh, Uh, you can maybe mix some pine needle into your soil. I would say only about 5% of your total soil mix. Uh, that'll help as well. Wood chips also tend to have a very good effect uh, with pro as they break down, providing some acid. Uh, so a little bit of very finely chopped wood mulch, maybe 10% of your soil mix, and the rest of a good quality potting mix uh, fertilized with azaleas, melts with pine needles. Man, you're going to create blueberry heaven. But you're going to have to provide some winter protection Your own results show you that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name is Israel Smith. Um, actually, my name is Iz on the forum. And uh, I have a question about having a home you know, during basically a large economic crisis. And uh, obviously, some of us are going to lose our jobs. There's going to be a lot of upheaval and stuff like that. And let's say you know we're making our payments and then bad stuff happens. And pretty much it's bad all around and nobody is getting a job. Is, are there going to be powers that be that come and take your house? Are there any options as far as, um, obviously, this is all your guess as good as mine, but, you know, I mean, what are good options as far as um, making the payments? And, uh, you know, do you move in people together? Do you start a farm? Do you sell things? Do you barter? You know, what do you do in that sort of situation? Also, um In line with that, when inflation, large inflation hits, hyperinflation or something that's very, very high, what uh, what is going to happen to the payments um, as far as mortgages and stuff like that? I mean, it, what does it turn into? Is it just a matter of money is worth less, and so we pay more of it, but it's all in line? You know, the value of money changes. We don't see a huge significant difference or what. Um, Anyways, I hope you understood that. I uh, really appreciate your podcast and your show, and uh, have a great day. Well, on the first part of the Bye. question, the answer is it depends. Is it like what just happened? If it's like what just happened, we have lots of foreclosures, and it craps on the market. It makes it worse, and uh, millions of people lose their homes. And then vultures come in and pick the bones and, and pick up the foreclosures and rebuild the houses, and the cycle continues. Um, so that's that's one way. I have a feeling you mean much worse. You mean, um, instead of being the worst crisis since the Great Depression, the worst crisis ever, including the Great Depression. Um, let's say double or triple what we just had happen from 2008 through till now. It's still going on, whether the TV tells you that or not. Um, 
Odds are that at some point the government steps in and puts a halt on foreclosures. Because the more people thrown out of their house, the bigger the problem that they create for themselves. So if we start creating, you know, uh, massive tent cities and things like that, they, they just tell the bankers, hey, suck it up for now. We'll figure out what to do later. We'll print some more money and give it to you and bail you out again or something like that. Which is a big part of what the bailouts were about. There were a lot of people that stayed in their homes. Uh, because of the bailouts. There were a lot of people that maybe lost their homes but went to another home instead of a shelter because of the bailouts and things like that. So the government probably tries to put a rope on that and control it to a degree, but uh, they, you know, it, it can't, it's not hyper-competent. The people that are the big conspiracy theorists that believe in every single conspiracy that they've ever heard of and the government's behind everything that ever happened and nothing is... You know, our government's just not that competent. They're staffed by ass clowns. They can't pull it off. So there is a point where they have imminent failure and, and we, we, you know, we just have to basically strip it to the bones and rebuild it. Um, so what do you do? Do you double up? Do you triple up? Things like that. That stuff's going on right now. And you do whatever you have to do as long as you think it's that much worth it for you to keep your home. The best thing to do is to be prepared for this, and that means we have emergency funds, we have rainy day funds, we have good savings, we have enough cash to be in our homes for six months without a job, and that keeps us out of the majority of trouble. Uh, we work on paying off our home early, etc. Now, if we have hyperinflation, what happens to your house payment? The part that's for your house, that's the loan to the bank, nothing. Um, this is where inflation favors home ownership. Is your money becomes worth less per unit as long as wages are increasing along with inflation, the relative value of your home uh, goes up, but your payment goes down compared to your income. Uh, taking this to the extreme, my father-in-law, who's been in his home for over 20 years, uh, currently has a house payment, including insurance and taxes, because he's got a grandfather tax uh, for being uh, a senior that was living in the city for a certain length of time, is $232. And he asked me if I thought he should pay off the house. And I said, no, I don't think you should pay off the house. I think you should make your house payment of $232. Because you have Social Security and you have savings and you have stocks and you have holdings. And I think that you're better off keeping the 10 years worth of $232 than paying off your house. And, and you know, not to be morbid, but, you know, who's going to guarantee that he's going to be here for 10 more years at his age? So I think you should just keep on rocking on. So that's how it can work. The problem with an economic crisis is often we have the inflation without the increase in wages. Right, So if you have real true runaway hyperinflation, the wages have to increase. But if you have the creeping, evil, slow inflation that acts like a tax on the American people, wages often don't keep pace with inflation. But let's just say that all of a sudden we go into a Weimar Germany moment. And a loaf of bread goes from $1.50 to $10.50 for the cheapest generic loaf of bread you can find. Your house payment doesn't go up too. Now, to buy a new house, it might go up, but nobody wants to sell the old house so people sit on the inventory because I got it cheap, right? This is why people, this is why home ownership in a lot of California is very stable. Because they have a, a proposition out there, I can't remember what it was, but it basically controls property taxes and it makes it, you have to increase property taxes on the homeowner very, very slowly. Now, you buy a new house, all of a sudden they can, bam, they can hit you hard. So there's people that have been in their homes for 15, 20 years in California. They don't want to go anywhere else because they've got great tax rates locked in on their home. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just saying that's how it works. So, no, hyperinflation doesn't mean your house payment goes up, but 
We had a hyperinflationary period like that. What's going to go up? Property taxes and property insurance. So you could see a dramatic rise in the cost of keeping your home. Um, again, though, I think that these fantasies about the U.S. experiencing inflation the way that Weimar Germany did are just that, they're fantasies. If you want to look at what modern inflation looks like, look at Argentina a few years ago, look at the Soviet Union during the uh, the collapse and, and where the Soviet Union divided up, and that's what we're talking about. And it's bad, but it's not a wheelbarrow of money for a sack of potatoes. It's not Zimbabwe. That's not how first world modern nations uh, break down their economy. It's a, a more methodical monster. It's just as bad in some ways, but... Again, there's the people that have the fantasy that when this happens, I'm just going to use five silver bars and buy my dream home. Not going to happen. Um, much more likely what we'll see it, with our economy deteriorating is a slow spiral rather than a dramatic slam. Uh, James Wesley Rawls, who uh, wrote the book Patriots, who wrote about a dramatic slam in the novel, if you actually read his blog, you'll see that he actually believes that the the way the economy dies is exactly the way I believe the economy dies. More of a slow spiral than a dramatic drop. A dramatic drop just makes a better fan fiction novel. Um, and it lets you bring up all the survival stuff that he wanted to put in the book. But as a realist, you look at it and you go, this is just not the way it works in modern America. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Carson from Canada here. A couple quick stories. I just finished listening to show 634 about container gardening, and you mentioned w one thing that you say a lot about our children understanding where our food comes from. Um, when my little girl was about 27 months old, so about nine months ago now, she uh, I uh, watched Tammy's backyard food production DVD. I think her name's Tammy. Anyways, I watched the Backyard Food Production DVD, and she found, she ran around and played until the butcher and the rabbit. And she sat on my lap, and I explained to her, they raise rabbits to eat, so they have to kill and prepare the rabbits to eat. And she found that quite fascinating. It wasn't traumatic for her at all, especially because of the way it's done. And then, about three weeks ago, she came into the kitchen while I was washing dishes or something like that, looked up at me sweetly with her blonde curly hair and beautiful blue eyes and said, Daddy, can we go hunting today? And it melted my heart. She knows I like guns and hunting, and, but I've never really pushed it on her like, you have to like this, but she has decided that she likes both of those things. And so, in about a week and a half, I hope to be able to take her rabbit hunting with me and my brother. Hope you have a great day. Bye. Well, Carson, thanks for sharing that. I think that's just awesome, and I'm glad your little girl feels that way. Not all kids are going to feel that way, but there's no reason we can't share reality with them in a very soft, gentle way. And I think that you're actually talking about Marjorie. Tammy's from Dehydrate the Store. Marjorie is from the Backyard Food Production DVD, which, again, is available in our gear shop now. You'll find it under DVDs because uh, Marjorie is uh, moving to a different distribution model and trying to have more resellers than sell direct. So we've uh, taken on being a reseller for her. Uh, great DVD. And the way that she dispatches that rabbit is done with respect and reverence. And I think that we can teach our children, yes, your steak comes from a cow. That Kentucky Fried Chicken in the bucket you shouldn't be eating, but we do it once in a while because it does taste good. Um, that comes from a chicken that walks around and clucks. And, and there's and there's a certain there's a certain point to say, 
We need to have a reverence for another creature gave its life so that I can continue my own. I don't think that's a harsh lesson for a child. I think that's actually a very, very special lesson. And I think teaching them about growing food is great as well. And my only question for Carson is, how the heck are you going rabbit hunting in April? What's going on up there in Canada, man? I I, I can't go hunting rabbits in April. Uh, but uh, if you can, I guess that's a good thing. And uh, take that little girl out, teach her to shoot straight, teach her to respect the life that she harvests, uh, and teach her there's nothing wrong with it. And all the people that tell her there is that sit down and eat a Big Mac are the biggest hypocrites in the world. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Tony from Arizona. Got a quick comment for you. On episode 633, uh, you were talking about how they were going to do the road uses tax. It sounds like what they're doing is maybe the old bait and switch where they're going to talk about having to do all this infrastructure. And uh, what they'll eventually finally saying is, well, when you go in to do your emissions, we'll just look at your odometer and, and tax you that way. Also, have a uh, recommendation for some of the listeners. There is a documentary called Waste Equals Food. Uh, about a guy, William McDonough, and another guy, a German scientist, and I can't remember, or a chemist, excuse me, I can't remember his last name. Uh, but it's a very interesting thing. Basically, it's about, uh, pretty much about, uh, permaculture, excuse me, principles applied kind of to the corporate world. Uh, thanks for the show, Jack. Appreciate all you do. Bye. Uh, Tony, it's a bait and switch, but it's not that way. They're not going to do it like when you get your tags, they're going to charge you a tax. Because it's going to be a big tax. This is going to add up to thousands of dollars a year per driver. And they know that if they wait till the average person shows up to get their tags, they're not going to have the money. You can say, well, you don't give us the money, we won't give you your tags, and all we do is look at your odometer, and it's that easy and that simple, and blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. But uh, it, it, you know, if the person doesn't get their tags, it doesn't really do you any good as a state because you didn't get the money. So if you've noticed the way you get lots of money from Americans and you do it in a way that they're going to accept it is you take it a very tiny piece at a time. You take a little bit out of their paycheck every year. You take away $30,000 in federal withholding. You give them back $837 in a tax return and they feel like they, uh, they got something, even though you took away, you know, the majority of the 30K. So, uh, this is what they're going to do with the, 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 the toll tax is what I'm going to call it. It's going to be a toll road tax. Every road's going to become a toll road. They don't need to build the infrastructure. It's bullshit. They already have it. They're gonna, all that's going to happen is when you get your little sticker for your car for your registration, it's going to have an RFID tag in it. And then all they need, and they don't even need the RFID tag. They can do it with your license plate and a camera. But they're going to do it with the RFID tags because it's more efficient. Uh, they're going to put this infrastructure up everywhere. Now, the, put, are they going to put it on your, your, your city streets and blocks and stuff like that? Your small town, you know, your suburban streets and all? Probably not because it's not worth it. But they're going to put it on all the major roads, all the major arteries. It, it'll go first to the interstates and then to the state highways and then to the county roads and then, you know, to the, and they'll, they'll do it right away in the major cities and stuff. And everybody will take a piece of the pie. When the city of Arlington puts it in like, you know, where I live in Cooper Street and Matlock and whatever, it'll go into the federal system, but the state or the city will get a, you know, a two percent of it and the state will get three percent of it. And then the rest will go to the federal pie that gets chopped back up and, and pushed through. They're going to do it that way. The, all the, all the stuff about, you know, we need to build the infrastructures crap. It's crap. They have to put a sensor here and a sensor there. And that'll create green... They're going to call it green jobs. And they're going to say, look at all these jobs that were created. And they'll say, we can never take this away. Look how many people depend on it. 
And it's because the, the, the amount of money they're going to be able to collect from gasoline is declining and declining and declining. And the American people have reached a point where they, they only have so much stomach for the gas price to be increased because they have to look at the price every time they pump the gas. And technology is evolving, and we're getting normal cars, not hybrids, with 40-plus miles to the gallon. People are cutting back on the gas consumption. So there's just going to tax movement. It's going to happen. It is a bait and switch. But they will not, absolutely are not going to charge you a tax based on your odometer reading uh, when you get your inspection. Because you, if you believe that, you don't realize how bad this really is. And also, my friends, uh, everything's got to be painted green in the modern world. So you would lose the opportunity to have premiums because, see, the government is smart about how to collect money and extort it from you. So what they'll do is they'll say on a four-lane highway, the far left lane is now the express lane, and especially at times like, let's say, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., it is the premium express lane, and you can go over there and you can drive, but you're going to be taxed at a higher rate than if you drive in the slow lanes. And they'll actually, and they'll end up cutting up the entire major interstate system into like premium, sub-premium, and, and, and barter lanes. And they're going to tax you different rates at different times a day to relieve congestion. And they're going to talk about how it improves the uh, climate. And everybody's happy, and nobody's going to be happy, and everybody's going to get screwed out of money. That's what's coming. I'm telling you that in America, within the next 15 years, Every time you drive down any major street or road or highway, you're going to be paying an additional tax just for the privilege to move. It is going to happen. It is coming. And I don't think we're going to be able to stop it. I will fight it. And I will help. I will ask you to help me fight it. But I think it's a battle we're going to lose unless we completely change the nation uh, into more of a libertarian philosophy. And I don't think 10 to 15 years is enough time for us to get that done. So I think that's what's coming. I'm not happy about it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Gil um, from Portland, Oregon. Uh, recently on an episode, you talked about expiration dates on um, pepper sprays. Uh, I'm a police officer, and I had a expired can from October of 2010 of um, our duty pepper sprayer OC and uh, we, my wife had some uh, kind of the small keychain ones kind of floating around on her keychain in her cars and they'd been there for a few years but they didn't have any expiration dates anyways went out shooting the other day and I, I took took the little keychains and the uh, my uh, old duty spray out and, um, every single one of them uh, just dribbled on my hand and Uh, were, were absolutely worthless. Um, of course, the one, they got red dye all over my hand too. But um, there was I, sp I tried spraying them on a tree a little bit, but they, they were um, almost 100% ineffective. So um, <clears throat> the duty can was uh, October 2010. So if that's any any uh, help. But anyway, um, so thanks again. Just keep up the good work, and uh, just you know, people should probably not push those. Uh, um, expiration dates too far. It's just uh, too too easy and too cheap to get new ones next. Bye. Uh, Tony, it's a bait and switch, but it's not that way. They're not going to do it like when you get your tags, they're going to charge you a tax because it's going to be a big tax. This is going to add up to thousands of dollars a year per driver. And they know that if they wait till the average person shows up to get their tags, they're not going to have the money. You can say, well, you don't give us the money. We won't give you your tags. And all we do is look at your odometer. And it's that easy and that simple and blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. But, uh, it, it, you know, if the person doesn't get their tags, it doesn't really do you any good as a state because you didn't get the money. 
So if you've noticed, the way you get lots of money from Americans and you do it in a way that they're going to accept it is you take it a very tiny piece at a time. You take a little bit out of their paycheck every year. You take away $30,000 in federal withholding. You give them back $837 in a tax return, and they feel like they uh, they got something, even though you took away you know the majority of the 30k. So. Uh, this is what they're going to do with the, 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 the toll tax is what I'm going to call it. It's going to be a toll road tax. Every road's going to become a toll road. They don't need to build the infrastructure. It's bullshit. They already have it. They're gonna, all that's going to happen is when you get your little sticker for your car for your registration, it's going to have an RFID tag in it. And then all they need, a little, and they don't even need the RFID tag. They can do it with your license plate and a camera. But they're going to do it with the RFID tags because it's more efficient. Uh, they're going to put this infrastructure up everywhere. Now, put, are they going to put it on your, your, your city streets and blocks and stuff like that? Your small town, you know, your suburban streets and all? Probably not because it's not worth it. But they're going to put it on all the major roads, all the major arteries. It, it'll go first to the interstates and then to the state highways and then to the county roads and then you know to the and they'll, they'll do it right away in the major cities and stuff and everybody'll take a piece of the pie when the city of Arlington puts it in like you know where I live in Cooper Street and Matlock and whatever it'll go into the federal system but the state or the city will get a you know a, a 2% of it and the state will get 3% of it and then the rest will go to the federal pie that gets chopped back up and and pushed through they're going to do it that way the, all the all the stuff about you know we need to build the infrastructure is crap It's crap. They have to put a sensor here and a sensor there. And that'll create green... They're going to call it green jobs. And they're going to say, look at all these jobs that were created. And they'll say, we can never take this away. Look how many people depend on it. And it's because the, the, the amount of money they're going to be able to collect from gasoline is declining and declining and declining. And the American people have reached a point where they, they only have so much stomach for the gas price to be increased because they have to look at the price every time they pump the gas. And technology is evolving, and we're getting normal cars, not hybrids, with 40-plus miles to the gallon. People are cutting back on the gas consumption. So they're just going to tax movement. It's going to happen. It is a bait-and-switch. But they will not, absolutely are not going to charge you a tax based on your odometer reading uh, when you get your inspection. Because you, if you believe that, you don't realize how bad this really is. And also, my friends, uh, everything's got to be painted green in the modern world. So you would lose the opportunity to have premiums. Because, see, the government is smart about how to collect money and extort it from you. So what they'll do is they'll say on a four-lane highway, the far left lane is now the express lane. And especially at times like, let's say, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., it is the premium express lane. And you can go over there and you can drive, but you're going to be taxed at a higher rate than if you drive in the slow lanes. And they'll actually, they'll end up cutting up the entire major interstate system into like premium, sub-premium, and, and, and barter lanes. And they're going to tax you different rates at different times a day to relieve congestion. And they're going to talk about how it improves the uh, climate. And everybody's happy, and nobody's going to be happy, and everybody's going to get screwed out of money. That's what's coming. I'm telling you that in America, within the next 15 years... Every time you drive down any major street or road or highway, you're going to be paying an additional tax just for the privilege to move. It is going to happen. It is coming. And I don't think we're going to be able to stop it. I will fight it. And I will help, I will ask you to help me fight it. 
But I think it's a battle we're going to lose unless we completely change the nation uh, into more of a libertarian philosophy. And I don't think 10 to 15 years is enough time for us to get that done. So I think that's what's coming. I'm not happy about it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Mike in Houston. I uh, love your show, and thanks for everything you do for us. Uh, quick question uh, about uh, Mylar versus vacuum seal bags. Um, which one's better? Is there is there one that's better? I know that in bulk the cost was really similar. Um, in large bags, like the five-gallon buckets, probably don't have a choice, right, with Mylar. Um, and then lastly, um, should you vacuum seal Mylar? Um, is it made? Is it necessary? Is uh, Mylar uh, made to be vacuum sealed? Will it uh, withstand the uh, pressure, or should you just drop the oxygen absorbers in and and seal it up? Um, last question on a different subject: uh, Are you aware of, or have you considered uh, some type of other than the forums? Um, some type of system whereby people can contact each other in the same geographic region and um, get together. Um, one idea, one one thing would be for like bulk purchases of, of I don't know, five gallon buckets. Um, anyways, that answer is on the forum. I apologize, uh, but uh, keep up the good work. We appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Uh, the Mylar versus vacuum seal, I think it's really more about the application in a lot of ways. But in some ways, I greatly favor Mylar and oxygen absorbers because um, vacuum sealers have a tendency to crap out. I've seen quite a few of them crap out, even some really good ones. I've seen some low end. I, you know, I had a low end food saver that went like two and a half years before it crapped out. I had a really good one, I thought, that crapped out in about six months. Uh, if you want to do a lot of vacuum sealing, you're looking at going to something that's like a commercial-grade product, something that's a $400, $300 and up product. Um, and I think that's a big investment for a lot of people that could go a lot further into just simply food or other preps. And, I mean, I think what, what's great about vacuum sealers is it's great for things like freezing stuff and keeping it from being freezer burned, buying bowl cheese and vacuum sealing up the individual components of it, uh, and keeping that in a refrigerator and avoiding mold and things like that. But um, uh, for long-term storage, it, it definitely creates that oxygen-deprived environment. But Mylar is so much simpler. You put the stuff in the Mylar bag, you drop the O2 absorber in, You force most of the oxygen out and, and air out that you can. You seal it up with something as simple as an iron. Um, the O2 absorber goes to work, starts sucking up the oxygen, and a day later it looks like it was vacuum sealed. In fact, you know you should not vacuum seal Mylar. Uh, you can do it, but I have seen it, and I've had other people tell me that vacuum, they vacuum sealed Mylar, including O2 absorbers, and the little bit of O2 that was left in there as it took that last bit up, they've seen the bags ruptured. Um, so I, for, for just day-to-day -day storage of dry goods and things like that, I think that Mylar and O2 is more than sufficient, uh, especially considering you're taking those bags and putting them into a five-gallon bucket or you're putting them into uh, uh, to a storage bin or something like that. I've seen more, um, I've actually seen more vacuum seal bags fail uh, than, than Mylar. Uh, Mylar seems pretty bulletproof if we don't get stupid with how tight we try to make things. Remember, we're not going to recreate the environment that Mountain House creates when it freeze-dries a port drop and seals it in a completely deprived environment in a number 10 can. We can't go that far anyway. There's always some level that we could have done more. 
So we do what's reasonable. And remember, with this, even our long-term stores, we should be eating what we store and storing what we eat. So when it comes to storing pasta, beans, other dry goods and things like that, Mylar and O2 absorbers, I would have answered this question differently two years ago. But in all the food storage that I've been doing in the last couple of years and all the different things I've put together, uh, I'm becoming a much bigger fan of Mylar, especially because it's something everybody can easily do without any major investment. You buy the bags, you buy the O2 absorbers, Yeah, that cost is the same roughly as vacuum seal bags and what have you, but we don't have to have the vacuum sealer, and it's it's a, a, a component that won't fail. If we have one bag fail, put the stuff in another bag and redo it, right? Or take it out and decide it's time to use it. Uh, if the sealer fails, we have to replace the sealer. Even if it's under warranty, we have to send it in and wait for a new one to come back. So uh, to me... If you're making the choice, that's how I'd make the choice. As far as people getting together outside of anything beyond what we already have with the regional stuff in the forum, you're on your own. Uh, the way I look at it, by creating kind of an area where people can connect with each other by region and do anything together, I'm already sticking my neck out. For somebody to go out there and do something stupid and mug somebody or something like that, um, I'm big on local community, but I'm also big on privacy issues for the members of the audience that listen to this show. And right now, it's a completely voluntary system. You're able to reach out. If anybody wants to talk to you, they talk to you. If they don't want to talk to you, they don't talk to you. And if you want anything more than that, um, you know, you're, you're on your own there, and I can't sponsor it. Uh, anything that creates an accumulation of names or a list or anything like that, that has to be between everybody on that list together with themselves. If I ever find out that anybody's trying to make a list of TSP listeners, I'm going to take that person's head and put it on a freaking platter. Uh, and that's not a di no, direct response to the caller. That's just I want everybody to know that. Uh, being a member of this audience doesn't, doesn't automatically make two people compatible with each other in any way, shape, or form. There's plenty of disagreement here. Uh, and there's plenty of people here that would prefer to listen to the show and have nobody ever know who they are. And I want that environment for them as well. So I, I don't want any kind of a, you know, that, 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 that goes beyond what there already is. If you guys want to create it for yourself in your own world, go ahead, but I'm not going to sponsor it. Now, one way to leverage the the large numbers of the audience to get better deals is to join the member support brigade. I don't want to make that a commercial or anything, but you know, there's massive discounts there on you know all different types of it, whatever it is you want. There's a discount on it, and if there isn't yet, there will be soon. I'm trying to kind of expand the stable a little bit and go into some other things. So instead of trying to get people together and all decide you want to buy the same thing, you can join the members brigade for 50 bucks a year, buy whatever the hell you want, and get a discount. Yeah, and to me, that's a much more anonymous, individual thing. The only person who knows who you are is me, and I don't really pay attention, right? Other than when you email me and tell me a story or something like that, just the fact that you join the MSB doesn't mean that I know you personally. Uh, that comes from commu two-way communication. So you guys are kind of on your own with that one. But, but it's, a, it's a good question, and I don't think there's anything wrong with 10 of you getting together and going to, to you know to a, a supplier and say, well, if, instead of buying you know 50 pounds a week, all of us come together and buy you know 500 pounds a week. Is there a discount? Just don't expect it to be that big with bulk items like wheat in the first place. It's already a commodity with a commodity price. And with that, I will wrap up today. Again, sorry I wasn't here for you Wednesday and Thursday, but it is Friday. I'm back. I'll be back Monday with another one of your shows where you email your questions to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. If you'd like to get it on call-in show like today's, remember 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. 
or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Thank you.